Morning, everybody. Um, Matthew 2, 118. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I may go, that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized they had, that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem in its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. So as I mentioned uh, a few minutes ago, today is the fourth Sunday of Advent. And throughout our season in Advent, throughout this like time of Advent, we've been talking about God's gifts of their Son to the world. And what we've said basically is that Advent is the season in which we celebrate, anticipate, remember, hope in God's gift of themselves to us in Jesus. Pretty basic Advent message that God is entered the world, that God so loved the world, they gave their one and only son. But part of the thing that we've been talking about in this Advent season is that a gift story, Advent being a gift story, the story of God giving his son to the world, that any good gift story has two sides to it. 
There's two perspectives, two characters, or at least more than one character in any gift-giving story. On the one side of a gift-giving story is the side that we're most familiar with, one that we're most accustomed to talking about. That's the story of the gift being given. Right? If I give you a gift, I make something, I purchase something, I wrap something, and I give it to you. That's part of the story, me giving you a gift, my intentions, my hopes, my expectations as I give you a gift. But there is another side that is equally important in any gift-giving narrative, which is what happens when the gift has been given and it is received. The reception of a gift is a part of the story as much as the giving of the gift is a part of the story. And that's kind of a tricky part about gift-giving stories is because no matter what my intentions are when I give a gift, no matter how much I spend on a gift, no matter how much I hope a gift is going to be meaningful, once I give you the gift, it's out of my control. I can't make you use a gift. That would be awkward. I can't make you value a gift. I can't make you love a gift. I can't even make you remember a gift once I've left the house and you've put it on a shelf and it begins to collect dust. All those things are outside of my power. And that's the tricky thing about giving a gift is that I may really value something that I've given you, but it doesn't mean that you will. And at some level, the value of a gift is determined not only by how much I spend on it, not only by how much I put into it, but by how much you value it and how much you want it and how much you like the gift. doesn't mean a lot if you don't like it at all. Uh, a few years ago for my birthday, uh, I think this was like three, four years ago for my birthday, Tori threw me a birthday party which is, a, you know, so kind. She throws me a birthday party, and it's like a brunch-themed birthday party. So it's after church on a Sunday. There's all, like, the best brunch foods everywhere. But the very central theme, like the most central component of the birthday party, was a Bloody Mary bar. And that's really beautiful. It's really lovely. It was, like, an amazing gift, except I hate Bloody Marys. I do not want my drink to taste like a pureed pizza. And I don't think you do either. I think anybody who likes a Bloody Mary, Matt, is lying to themselves. <laughs> like, I just think, I, nobody likes it. Why would you want to drink a soup? But that's not the point. She throws me this brunch party. It's really cute. It's really beautiful. But the very central component of the whole entire party is something that I don't like. Where we valued that gift a bit differently. And that's something interesting about that is that I valued that gift a little bit differently than Tori. And so then we kind of wondered, I was thinking about this, I was like, how did we get this moment of a gift being given that I valued so differently than my wife did? And I realized, like, she didn't know at the time of throwing me the party that I didn't like Bloody Marys. And if I'm honest, I had not communicated to her while she was setting up a Bloody Mary party that I did not like Bloody Marys because I didn't want to, like, temper the enthusiasm that she was experiencing for the party. It felt rude to say something that she had already put so much effort into and to stop the celebration from happening. However, she learned very quickly 
that I did not like Bloody Marys when at no point throughout the party was I drinking a Bloody Mary. And she was like, hey, why did I put all this energy and effort into something that you don't like? That's the tricky thing about a gift, though. You may value it. You may love it. You may have put a lot of energy and effort and time and commitment into the gift, but then you give it. And the other person may not value it or love it or respect it in the same way that you do. They may not want that gift in the same way that you do. And when it is a good gift or a big gift, it's actually really difficult to pretend like you want it when you don't. Right? Eventually, Tori learned that I don't like Bloody Marys. I couldn't hide it from her. She gave a gift and it revealed that I don't want that at all. And that's the truth of big, meaningful gifts. You can try to pretend, you can try to hide, you can try to cover up your true desires in a veneer of appreciation, but once the gift is actually given and you have to experience the gift and you have to appreciate the gift and you have to use the gift, well, it pulls back the veil and reveals that at your heart, you don't want pureed pizza to drink either. So far in the stories of Advent that we have been looking at, the gift of God enters into the world, and the people who receive it want it. They desperately long for the gift that is God. Last week, we looked at Anna and Simeon, and these are these people who've been hoping for so long in restoration and rescue. And so when the gift of Jesus arrives, it is the ultimate gift, the ultimate hope, the ultimate fulfillment of their deepest longing. The week before that, we looked at the shepherds, these field workers who have been waiting for something, and they hear the good news of Jesus, and it is refreshing and hopeful. And the first week, we looked at Mary, who is asked of a lot when she hears about the good news of Jesus, and yet she receives it as good news. And she prays maybe the most marvelous prayer in the New Testament about what this good news means for the world. She wants it. She longs for it, even though it will cost her dearly. Right? In each of these stories, we've seen the gift be given, and it be received, and it be wanted, and it be welcomed. As the gift enters, it pulls back the, the curtains, and what it reveals is that these people really do long for Jesus to arrive. But today, our final character that we're going to look at in this Advent story, when he receives the gift— and when the curtain is pulled back, what we see is that he does not want the gift that is being given. And of all the people in the story, in some ways he's the person who should want it the most. He should know the most. He should have the most right answers about what this gift represents. And yet, when the gift of Jesus arrives into the world, it reveals something much darker. It pulls back the curtains to reveal fear and scarcity and a refusal to accept what Jesus is offering. This story comes in Matthew chapter 2. Josh read for us. 
And it comes in the midst of a very famous story. And I think we often pay attention to the famous story and we kind of miss the secondary story. But it comes in the story of the Magi who travel from the east to visit Jesus. And the Magi, these wise men, these kings, they're following a star. And something that I think is interesting about this story is that the star leads them first to Jerusalem. We always picture it like right over the manger, which it is. But it first leads them to Jerusalem where they have to do some reconnaissance. They have to ask some questions. They have to do some research. And this research all revolves around the question, where is the newborn king to be born? And they go to Jerusalem and they begin to ask this question, where is the newborn king to be born? And news of them asking that question in Jerusalem reaches Herod who is the current king of the Jewish people, the current king of the province of Judea in which this story is taking place. And the text in Matthew 2 says us that when the news reaches Herod, he is troubled. Herod is a very interesting character in this story. He is a man who has spent his entire life fighting for power, position, and authority. And he has done a very good job of it. He has been really successful. He becomes governor of the Judean region, and then he grows that role into being king and being named king by Rome. This is a person who's commanded armies. He has won wars. He has found favor with Caesars. Historically, he's friends with Antony of Antony and Cleopatra fame. Like he helps participate in that civil war. Herod has participated in coups. He's had rivals assassinated. He's imprisoned his own family in order to hold power, in order to expand his reign. He's also done marvelous works. He's rebuilt the Jewish temple that was destroyed by the Babylonians. He's expanded the territory of Judea. He secured his throne. Herod is like a real-world Game of Thrones or Succession-style character. He's leveraged power. He's fought for position. He's used intrigue and wisdom and scrutiny to get his way. But like Succession, actually, when the Magi arrive, Herod is old. In these moments of glory and grandeur and intrigue, well, they're a bit behind him. He's not going to war anymore. He's not riding into glory anymore. He's old and he is sick and he's going to die, actually, in a few years from this moment. And he probably knows that because he's sick. So some of his glory is behind him and the fragility of the future is in front of him. He has four sons, one who is in prison at the time of this telling because that son tried to poison his dad, Herod. And the other three are a bit, well, Herod's worried about their competency. So it's not hard to imagine knowing the story of Herod a little, it is not hard to imagine why I think the text tells us that he is troubled when he hears about a new king being born. Here is a person who has spent their whole 
life fighting to become king of the Jews. And then he hears rumor, he hears whispers that a new king is to be born. So he is troubled. The good news announcement about the king Jesus is actually a threat to Herod. Herod hears the whispers and the rumors that is gospel to the shepherds, gospel to the elderly who have been waiting and who have lost their loved ones, gospel to the teenage mother who has everything to lose. But to this man of power and privilege and war, he hears rumor that a new king is to be born and he hears a threat. A threat to his position, a threat to his authority, a threat to his power, a threat to his legacy, a threat to all the things that he has worked so hard to secure. This young infant king is a threat. And the thing about Herod is that he should know better than to see Jesus as a threat. In verse 5 of Matthew chapter 2, it says that Herod is surrounded by the best scholars of Hebrew thinking, and he's surrounded by the chief priests of Hebrew religion. It says in verse 5, he was able to gather all the chief priests and all of the legal experts and ask them, where is the Christ, the Messiah, to be born? What that means is that Herod knows the promises of the Messiah, He knows the promises that the Hebrew people have been curating about a coming king. He knows the good news that the shepherds know. He knows the good news that Anna and Simeon have held. He knows the good news that Mary has prayed, that a king is going to be born who's going to overthrow evil, establish the kingdom of God, restore the world to love, liberate us from sin, and bring in an era of shalom or peace. Herod knows that promise. He knows that hope. He knows that expectation. Herod's the person who rebuilt the Hebrew temple. He's even put money behind the promise, curating the religious worship of this Messiah. He should know better, but instead when he hears about this newborn king, it reveals what is underneath all of Herod's piety, all of Herod's pretending, all of Herod's power, what is actually at the very bottom of it. The advent of Jesus reveals what Herod really wants. It's not rescue or restoration. It is fundamentally the preservation of his own power, his own position. At the bottom of everything, Herod wants the world to stay the same. And Herod is not alone in this desire for the world to stay the same. The text says that Jerusalem, Jerusalem means city of peace. It's supposed to be God's city. It's where the temple dwells, right? It says Jerusalem with Herod is troubled. And we see this, not just in this moment, we see it all throughout Jesus' life. Jesus is very rarely accepted. Everywhere that Jesus goes, he is rejected. Jesus is rejected in his own hometown. He's rejected by religious leaders. He's rejected by almost everyone that he meets. Most people reject Jesus and his message. And primarily, the people who reject him are the people who are like Herod, the ones who should know better. 
Think of the rich young ruler who has followed the law perfectly. And he comes to Jesus. He says, Jesus, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus tells him. And the rich young ruler leaves sad, unwilling to follow Jesus. Think of the chief priests and the scribes who have studied the promises of the Old Testament literature and still reject Jesus. Or even his own disciples. They often deeply struggle with the story of Jesus and the promises of Jesus and the things that Jesus says. When Jesus says, you must eat my body to be my disciple, the disciples are all like, hmm, hello. (laughs) When Jesus says, you have to pick up my cross to follow me, the disciples say, well, oftentimes, no. Most of the places that Jesus goes... And most of the people who should respond to Jesus reject him. And this is important for us to listen to in this room because the truth is, for most of us who are in this room, the story or the characters in this story that we are most like is Herod, the chief priests, the scribes. The fact that we're in this room actually kind of demonstrates that to be true, that we every week hear the story of Scripture being proclaimed. Most of us have grown up hearing the hope of Jesus proclaimed. Teachings about Jesus are readily available to us. And we also are people of relative comfort and security. Most of us are not field laborers wandering with the sheep or young teenage women who are about to lose everything because of the promise of Jesus. We are like Herod in the story, which I think means we are people who have a lot to lose when Jesus claims kingship. Just like Herod. We like the idea of Jesus quite a bit. We know the right answers about Jesus. We are surrounded by the teachings of Jesus, but that is very different than actually wanting Jesus to be king and savior. All throughout the Advent story, what we have seen repeatedly is the people who respond well to Jesus are the ones who know they need him. We used a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer last week that says, the only people who can wait in Advent are the ones whose souls give them no peace, who are restless, And those are the ones who respond beautifully to Jesus, those who are restless and in need, those who long for a rescue that is bigger than themselves, and those who are tired of enduring Rome's promises of rescue. It's people who have seen the shallow lie of human attempts to rescue and save and deliver, and who long for something bigger and better and all-encompassing, who are willing for Jesus to be king, are the ones who long for it. It's Mary, a teenager. It's the field laborers. It's Anna and Simeon. It's people who believe it is worth everything. But Herod, or the chief priests, or the scribes, the rich young ruler, those who struggle to accept Jesus, which is the majority of people, well, they all have a lot to lose. Herod has a kingdom to lose, an empire to lose, 
an identity as king to lose, a position of privilege to lose, a position of power to lose. And the truth is, is, well, so do we in this room. The story of Advent is really good news, but it is also very hard news to those of us who have a lot to lose. It is good news that Jesus has come to restore the world to love. In fact, that's the best news. But it is hard news because love means justice. It means reconciliation. It means forgiveness. It means knowing the truth. Love means a changing of the world around us. That's the best news, but it is also hard news. We believe that Advent is the story of Jesus coming to liberate the world from sin. Again, that is the best news, but it is hard news for hearts and lives and systems that are misaligned from God. That's how we described sin a few weeks ago. Anything that is misaligned from the love of God. And when we benefit from that misalignment, it is hard news to know that it will change. That's the thing about sin that we often don't talk about is that we do it because we benefit from it or we participate in the system because it actually works for us. So it's good news that Jesus has come to liberate the world from sin, but it is hard news when our lives, our hearts, our systems, well, they benefit from them. And it is good news that Jesus has come to be king. In fact, it is the best news that Jesus has come to be king but it is hard news when all of us also claim to be king. Herod hears news that a king is to be born, and he knows it to be exactly what it is, a threat to his own kingship. The gift of Jesus to Herod triggers Herod's deepest fears. It reveals that what he really wants is the preservation of his own power, and it triggers his fear to hold on. And when we are afraid, when fear triggers our deepest longings and our deepest wants, well, we will do whatever it takes to hold on to what seems threatened. When we are afraid, we do not endure threats well. We see this in the story of Herod. Herod hears the story, right, of Jesus, the newborn king, to be born. So he calls the Magi to him. In verse 7, it says this, Then Herod secretly calls for the Magi and found out from them the time when the star had first appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search carefully for the child. When you found him, report to me so that I too may go and honor him. Herod, in this moment, pretends piety. He knows the right words to say. He knows the right language to use. He knows the right clothing to wear. He knows how to look good and religious. He says, I want to go worship too. I want to go pray also. I want to love this king too. But then his true intentions are revealed when the Magi do not return because in a dream they've heard a warning. So in verse 16, it says this, when Herod learned that the Magi had fooled him, he grew very angry. 
So he sent his soldiers to kill all the children in Bethlehem. And in all the surrounding territory who were two years old and younger, according to the time that he had learned from the Magi. It's a hard story. But in this moment, we see what fear does. In Herod, a lifetime of fearful preservation has metastasized. And when he sees a threat to his way of life, when he sees a threat to his identity, when he sees a threat to his control, when he sees a threat to his own power, that fear explodes. And it unleashes itself on the ones that he perceives to be a threat. Herod sees this newborn king as a threat, so he unleashes the very worst of himself to preserve his own power. Now, in a much less intense or severe way, fear can do the exact same thing in us. Fear rewrites the world into like a competitive equation. It gives us imaginations of scarcity, and it convinces us that we have to fight and hoard and steal to get what is ours, to hold on to the things that we long for and desire the most. And like it does for Herod, fear has a way of re-narrating the stories of others, re-characterizing others, and turning them into threats. And often, it's the most vulnerable who become threats. So for Herod, it's young Jewish boys. In our own life, it's coworkers who do well. And all of a sudden, somehow our own privilege, our own position, our own like, accomplishments are somehow under threat because of the success of someone else. That's fear. A spouse who doesn't give us what we want, a marriage that doesn't look like we thought it was supposed to, all of a sudden that becomes a threat. You don't give me the thing that I want. You don't produce the kind of longing that I was hoping for. You don't give me the imagination or the promises that I'd expected. And so now you're a threat to what it is that I want. Immigrants and refugees who are trying to safely cross the border for a new life, somehow they become threats. Fear looks for threats to blame and to villainize. It looks for people to turn into monsters. Someone who can hold the fear that we are and become the scapegoat. Like young Jewish boys who may one day threaten the throne. Now the tragic irony of Herod's life, of his fear and his desperation, is that in the end of the day, it means nothing. Soon after this moment, Herod dies. He massacres these boys, and then soon, soon after, he dies. And his great kingdom is divided amongst his incompetent sons. So the legacy, the heritage, the story, the glory, the grandeur, it's split up three ways and given to different sons. And then in a few years, Rome just reinvades and knocks the whole thing down. Lives and kingdoms that are built on preservation and fear 
they fall to the same tools that built them. And what happens to the gift? Well, in this story, Joseph, being warned in a dream, flees to Egypt. He hears a story, he hears this like warning from an angel that um, Herod is seeking to kill his son, and so he flees to Egypt, and he doesn't return again until Herod has died. And the new Herod, one of Herod's children, has taken the throne. But that's not the end of the story either. Because some 30 years later, another Herod will actually hear of Jesus and his claim at kingship. And like his father before him, the gift will trigger his fear and his hatred. And like his father, his fear will be unleashed in violence against this usurper. But unlike his father, this Herod will succeed in eliminating the threat. Thirty years later or so from this moment, Jesus is crucified by Pilate and a Herod. That doesn't sound very Christmassy. I apologize. So you might be wondering, like, how is that a story of a gift? How is that good news that the gift is rejected and then murdered? Well, it is actually the very central message of Advent. The very central message and purpose of Advent is that Jesus, the gift, has entered the world. And it is the greatest gift of all gifts. And it reveals our true desires. In fact, that's part of the reason the gift comes at all. It's to pull back the layers, to open the curtain wide, just like a good gift does in a relationship. It reveals what it is we truly long for, what it is we truly desire what it is we actually want. No matter how much we scream religion, it pulls back the curtain and shows us what is true. We may say we want Jesus, but when Jesus actually enters the world, when Jesus actually arrives, when Jesus' claims of kingship actually hit our ears, well, we are confronted with something different. And when that happens— For many of us, our fear and our scarcity can trigger in the same way that it did for Herod. That doesn't lead to the same kind of place. Don't hear me wrong. But it does something similar in us. It leads to a rejection, a dehumanization. A scapegoating. And so we, like Herod, we reject Jesus and refuse the gift for our own way. And here is the truth of Advent, the central message of Advent. Is that Jesus, the greatest of all gifts, who reveals our desires, triggers our fear, and then is rejected by our fear, well, he arrives in Jerusalem again. Herod the Great rejects Jesus, and then 30 years later, Jesus shows up again and offers himself to Herod. 
This is always what Jesus does to rejection, to fear and to violence. He gives himself to it again. He enters back into the place of rejection and offers himself as a gift one more time. The story of Advent is God actually becoming the thing that triggers our fear and taking the very worst of our violence into himself. In vulnerability, in otherness, it's Jesus identifying with the scapegoats that we make of the world around us, taking it all into himself, absorbing every iota, every every ounce of it, every shred of fear, regret, hatred, desire, and violence, emptying us of it. So that when we, breathless and empty-handed, stand before Jesus, then he offers the gift again. The story of Advent is the story of God continuing to offer himself to us, continuing to offer himself to our fear, continuing to offer ourselves, to offer himself to our rejection. It is the continued gift of God that disarms us with love. Jesus never forces Herod to do anything. That's the crazy thing about this story in some ways. Just offers himself to him. Gives and gives and gives. That's always the one side of the story. The God who gives and gives and gives and gives and never stops offering themselves in vulnerability to the world around you. But that then begins the second part of the story, which is what do we do with the gift that has been given? What do we do when it triggers our fear, when it reveals our deepest desires, when it exposes our wants? How do we respond to the gift that continues to give? You see, this is the question for today. And no matter what the answer is, because that's the thing that we can't control, and that I don't think God is even trying to control. So no matter what the response is in your own hearts, no matter what fear is triggered, no matter what desire is revealed, no matter what longing is revealed, God's side of the story stays the same. Gives and he gives. So Mr. today asks you, how do you respond once again to the story? But here's the part that I want you to know the most. No matter how you respond, God's side of the story stays the same continues to give. Will you receive it today? Or never do? God continues to give. So that our fear might be unmasked by love and by the consistency of a gift that continues to come. Let's pray. Jesus, today on this fourth Sunday of Advent, we hear maybe the hardest story of the Advent narratives, but also the one that I think is truest or most close to our own world. It's a story of a person who has got a lot to lose, a lot to give up when it comes to following you. 
and in fear, he rejects you. So God, we hear that story not to shame us or to judge us, but to open our own hearts and to analyze and diagnose where we fall in this narrative. But as that curtain is pulled back, truth revealed, would it open up space for us to see the other part of the story, that you are the God who gives and gives and gives again, who enters Jerusalem one more time? And as our fears are revealed and our hearts revealed and our wants revealed, would it also make space for us to see you in truth and love and clarity? so that we might respond to you again today. Jesus, help us know your gift. In your name we pray. Amen.